All right, well, I want to uh, share this morning from and begin by sharing from Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Feel free to turn in your Bibles if you like, or you can follow along with me up on the screen. This is uh, Paul's word to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, how many of you know when you hear those two words together, it's about to get good. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 1773, an Anglican clergyman, an English poet by the name John Newton, wrote what is now known to us as one of the most famous and well-known hymns written of all time. And I don't think there is anyone here who probably doesn't know these words off by heart. In fact, we sang these words this morning. And the words are, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was, but now I see. John Newton, he wrote those words and he, in 1773, but before that, he converted to Christianity after being miraculously rescued uh, at sea during a shipwreck. And he not only from that event went into ministry as an Anglican priest, but he was a leading voice in the abolition movement, just barely making it, just barely living long enough to see slavery abolished in Great Britain in 1807. But did you know that John Newton, before he penned those words, before he was, uh, went into the abolition movement, before he was miraculously saved at sea, that before any of those things ever happened, that John Newton was a slave trader. He was someone, a captain of a ship, who brought slaves from Africa to Britain. He captained many of these slave ships. And after retiring as a captain, he heavily invested financially in the slave industry. You know, philosophers have long debated whether or not we humans are born into this world evil or good. Are we born evil and then over time progressively we become good? Or are we born good and then progressively over time become evil? It's the question of original sin versus original goodness. And the human paradox is a mixture of this good and evil. Beauty and ugliness. You know, we have this unlimited potential, yet we experience tragic failure. But the Bible begins with the core idea that we were created by a good and perfect God who wonderfully and fearfully made us in his image. 
And, and the Bible tells us that it was his purpose for us not just to bear his image, but to reflect his image on this earth towards other people, towards other parts of his creation. And you can see this reflection in the image of humankind. You really can. I believe that there is goodness deep down in every single one of us, and it shows that we, we reflect, we are capable of reflecting that goodness through our kindness and our sacrifice, our compassion, our creative abilities. Yet at the same time, we distort and we destroy that same humanity through our workings of evil. We are self-centered. We are apathetic. We tear down what others build. We ignore the cries of the poor and needy. And the dark side of this human experience is what the biblical authors define as sin. And what they write about, we can confirm through our own experience. Something went horribly wrong. Something went horribly wrong, and it was not God's fault, not even a little bit, but we humans, we were the ones at fault for derailing God's good intentions. And as a result, Ephesians says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love towards us, made us alive in Christ. Even though we were already dead in our trespasses, we were saved by grace. Amazing grace. Wonderful grace. Beautiful grace. And for the month of February, we are going to be looking at the word power as part of our Build Your House series. As part, and we're going to today look at what is the power of sin in our lives. Now, you don't really need a pastor, do you, to remind you of the power of sin. I mean, you know far better than I do of what sin has done in your life and what sin has done in the lives of those around you. But this morning, we're going to dive into the deep waters of exploring this topic of sin. Yet, hear me today, we do not dive into the dark abyss of sin without knowing that we are tethered by God's grace. The Bible says that where sin abounds, where sin runs deep, God's grace abounds even more deeper, even runs far deeper than even our sin. And in fact, apart from God's good grace, there's no reason for you and I even to talk about the power of sin in the first place. And so we're going to explore the topic of sin this morning. We're going to dive into that dark abyss, the waters of the topic of sin. But remember that throughout it all, we are tethered so tightly, so secure by God's grace. Fleming Rutledge, she is a, a wonderful Anglican minister and writer. Uh, she writes these words, and she says that only those whose eyes have been opened to the light of Christ rejoice in having their deeds exposed. We can declare that sin is powerful, but we never do so, we never do that without simultaneously declaring and proclaiming that the love of God is even more powerful and far greater. We recognize that yes, the wages of sin is death and the wages of living is sin. But we say in the same breath, oh death, where is your sting? And oh death, where is your victory? You see, except in reference with God, sin is a meaningless category, isn't it? Except with reference to God, sin is a meaningless category. And there is no better example 
than examining the ways in which our world tries to deal with sin, uh, specifically dealing with sin apart from the cross. You know, our world is very aware of sin. It's not that our world is ignorant to sin. Our world is aware of sin, just doesn't know what to do with sin, especially when it comes to neglecting the cross. We do several things. First, we, we downplay sin. We minimize it. We say things like, it's just a white lie. Or we trivialize it. We, we say it's a sinful dessert. It's an oxymoron. Eh? It's a sinful dessert. Because dessert is not sinful. You know, we, we, we normalize it. We minimize it. We trivialize it. We downplay sin. And, or maybe on the other hand, secondly, we cancel sin. You know, cancel culture is a, is a brutal culture, and we're living in the midst of it right now. You know, cancel culture is this recognition of sin without any recognition of God's grace or redemption, isn't it? You know, we want to cancel people. We want to send them off into the wilderness with no path of redemption, no path uh, towards grace, and it's why cancel culture is so cold and heartless and ultimately futile. It recognizes what the, what the power of sin is, but it does not recognize the power of God's grace. I can only imagine what John Newton would have done or not done living in, in a time of cancel culture. He would have been canceled far before he ever had a path towards redemption. So we minimize it, or we cancel it, and third, finally, we try to overcome it. We try to overcome sin through things like education. We just think if I get enough education, if I just, you know, strive good enough, if I, if I earn and by my merit, I can overcome my sin. Or we engage in the social sciences, we solicit the help of a therapist to try to help us overcome our sin. But the Bible makes it clear, and, and don't get me wrong, that's not a dig at therapy. I believe that healing comes through a combination of God's forgiveness and also the help of those who have the expertise to help us walk that road of healing. But it's about overcoming sin apart from God's grace. But the Bible makes it very clear that sin is the universal human condition. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned. We have all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is not just something we do. Sin is something we are all in. And I think one of the downfalls when it comes to dealing with sin is not recognizing that sin is more than just a collection of our individual misdeeds. Rather, sin is an active agency that is bent upon inciting you, imprisoning you, dominating you, and eventually destroying you. And our misdeeds, our individual actions, are the sign of the agency that is sin. The power of sin that is at work in us. Genesis chapter 4-7 sort of reveals this agency of sin. It says sin is crouching at your door. You know, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So when we come to understand sin, we have to see sin as more than just the sum of all of our wrongdoings, sin has agency. It has desire, and its desire is to enslave you and to rule over you. Jesus says in John chapter 8, 34, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's why the conversation, we've got to expand the conversation around sin to be more than just our individual misdeeds, but not to downplay or minimize how destructive those deeds are, but as a power, sin manifests itself in four yet different, four different yet simultaneous ways. And I want to talk about that this morning. First is the power of alienation. God designed you and I to live in community, to be in community with others and also with himself. 
And that divine intention for you and I was to live in harmony with his creation, to enjoy fellowship, and to participate in, this, in this, his divine life. Yet sin is the failure for you and I to live according to his design. You know, the Bible has many ways to describe the word sin. You know, sin is not just one word with one definition. In fact, sin has many meanings, many definitions in which the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are, are filled with. And we would need more time to really go into detail on what each individual you know, word for sin means. But some of the examples are words like crooked, lack of integrity, a breach of trust, a revolt, a refusal of authority. That's just the Old Testament. The New Testament, we get words like disobedience to a voice, ignoring what should already be known, transgressing bound. Boundaries. But by far in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the most common definition when it comes to sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark of what, you might ask? See, often we think that missing the mark is missing the mark of God's law or God's rule, and that absolutely is part of it, but it's more than that. Sin is missing the mark, it is, but it is missing the mark, it is falling short of who God created us to be. You know, John Piper, some of you might not love all the things that he has to say, but I think he just nails it here in what he says about sin. He says, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. See, God created us to have it all, to have it all, yet we gave it away willingly. We failed to acknowledge his sovereignty we fail to love our neighbor and to love God the way they ought to be loved. And so when we talk about sin, we need to understand sin is the failure of any action or attitude that is ungodly, does not mirror God, or fails to reflect the manner in which God would think or act. And as a result of our sin, we alienated ourselves from God. We turned our backs from God. We cut ourselves off from his presence. God did not turn his back on us. Not for a moment. But as a result, we can no longer live in harmony with the garden in which our creator placed us. We are alienated from God by our choice, not his. And not just alienated from God, but alienated from one another. Interestingly, sin is always mentioned as a form of wrongdoing, but always in relation to another person. It's always in relation to another Sin is both the absence of community, but sin is also the destruction of community. 1 John 1, seven says it very interestingly. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, it says we have fellowship. But what sort of fellowship do we have? A fellowship with God? Is, it, is that what it means? No, it says if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another with one another, with you and with me together. When we are together walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so that's the first way we see the sin as a power. Sin is the power to alienate us from God. Secondly, sin has the power to condemn us. A sin has the power of condemnation. You see, by sinning, we have now a sentence of judgment which hangs over our heads. 
And unless we throw our sins on the cross, unless we receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, who was sinless but became sin, so that we the condemned, we the children of wrath, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, could become the righteousness of God. You know, we stand guilty in our sin before not just our creator, but a righteous judge who, who Revelation says will come again to judge the living and the dead. Those who are washed clean by the blood of the lamb, their judgment though will be different from those who try to find their own salvation, who try to deal with sin in their own way or in their own manner. The book of Numbers says, and I think it doesn't just say it, it's sort of a warning, but be sure your sins will find you out. If not here on earth, well, it will happen at very least at the judgment seat of Christ. But here's what I've learned about sin. For those living in sin, I mean, we've all sinned, but those living in the prison and the enslavement of sin is that they are already living under sin's condemnation. You know, the condemnation is not just a future thing, it's a present thing. You know, the one who is in sin is being damaged. There's a desensitization that takes place. We become numb to no, and no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We live in shame and constant fear of being found out for the things that we've done. I've seen sin affect one's physical body. Living in sin, you can see the life drain from their face and there looks like, it looks like they are sick physically. But when they come to the light, when they receive healing and forgiveness for their sin, it's like health came rushing back into their physical body. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 34.22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we see the sin as the power of, alien, of, of condemnation, of alienation. Third is that sin has the power of enslavement. Sin is the power to enslave. You know, often the way we talk about sin here in the Western uh, world, and this is all the way sort of back to the Reformation, that we've had this very legal-centric view of sin, that sin is this transgression, we've broken a law, and therefore we are guilty. You know, we stand before a judge, and, and that is absolutely one sense of sin that we need to talk about. But we have to talk about sin in, in another sense, and that is through a, a cosmic lens, in a cosmic sense of the word. And that was really what our summer series was all about. That spiritual conflict, looking at the cosmic struggle taking place between, you know, um, but not between one another, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. There's a struggle that is taking place right now between cosmic forces of good and evil. And sin is an alien evil force that is trying to hold us in its grasp. Part of sin's power is that when it enslaves us, when it imprisons us, we're no longer able to exercise choice. We discover to our horror that we have to and we must obey sin. It's why Jesus, when he came, he said he came to set the captives free. It's why he came to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Psalm 107.14 says, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. 
Jeremiah 30, verse 8. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. Finally, as we've read in John chapter 8 this morning in 34, it says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, Jesus says. But then he goes on to say this in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Fourth, finally, sin is a power because it exposes our depravity. You know, it shows us our human inability and our powerlessness to remedy the situation that we put ourselves in. You know, because sin is a power, it requires a radical cure that comes from the outside of us, yet has the ability to go to the very core of the problem that is inside of us. So it has to be outside of us. It can't come from within us. We're not strong enough. We're not powerful enough. We're too weak. We're, we're too, we've too fallen. So the power has to come outside of us, but it has to go straight to inside of us. And so the question is, what power is beyond uh, humankind? The answer is God. God. The answer is God. Jesus said, you know, to the crowds in Matthew chapter 9, which is easier to do? To forgive sins or to say, pick up your mat and walk, which is easier. If you were to choose which one would be the the harder task, to forgive sins or to bring physical healing. But here's what Jesus does in verse 6 to 9 of Matthew 9. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. So let us never forget God's beloved Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we see sin sin has the power to alienate, to condemn, to enslave, to deprive us from God. Is it any wonder why God hates sin so much? This should be no secret today. God hates sin. To think that God made all of this, this beautiful, this perfect creation for us to enjoy, to share in his divine life, yet we opened the door to sin ourselves. We allowed sin to come in, and as a result, we are now held under sin's grasp. It's like owning an art museum, and you purchase all this beautiful art, and you display it, and you make it look all beautiful, and you invite the public in to come and to enjoy the fruit of your labor, and instead of coming in to enjoy and participate and partake in the work, they tear the place to pieces. They destroy it, they steal it, and they leave you with just a wrecked wrecked museum. Or how about another example that's a little bit closer to home? This week we saw these truckers move in downtown. And that came with a lot of different sorts of people who did a lot of sorts of different things. Some of it was not so good. Some of it was not bad. Some of it was not good. And we've all heard and seen the stories of the individuals doing things, and we don't need to repeat them. Some pretty grotesque things. You're hearing the complaints of the residents downtown. Probably saw the video of the individual who said he can't sleep in five nights. So we, we, we've seen what, what's happened. And the city wants done something about, done about it, right? It wants an emergency to be called. It wants, it's even asked for the military to come in and remove these trucks. You would think that because God hates what sin has done to his creation, that his hatred for our sin would be really, really bad, 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 bad news for us. Wouldn't you think that? Actually, 
God's hatred of sin is not bad news. No, in fact, God's hatred for sin is the best news that you and I could ever receive today. You see, God hates sin. He did not cause sin. He cannot sin. So, but neither does he tolerate sin. And God could do anything he'd like to deal with our sin. He could call in heaven's army to rid us of this sinful occupation. God could do anything he'd like. He could press charges, and rightly so, it would be the most open and shut book case there ever was. We'd be guilty and sentenced to death for what we've done. God has every right to deal with us fairly and justly according to our sins, but Psalm 103 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Is there anyone who sees that as good news today? Anyone? Instead of calling in the army to deal with us once and for all, God sent his one and only son into the world who perfectly lived out the vocation of being an image bearer of God, the one who was fully human yet did not sin, the one who was fully human yet perfectly lived out the will of God for humanity, to show us God's faithfulness towards us in spite of our unfaithfulness towards him, to demonstrate in his love the radical lengths that God will go to deal with our sinfulness and restore community with us. The gospel is the good news that God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. He died for your sins and he died for the sins of the world. But it says, the word says he didn't just die for our sins. It says he bore our sins. That he who was without sin became sin. He took upon himself the the sins of the world. But because sin could not hold him, sin could not enslave him the way that sin can enslave you and I, Jesus overcame our sin and overcame its power. And as a result of the cross, sin was defeated. It was trampled over. It was erased. And Colossians says that Jesus has now erased our certificate of debt with all its obligations. He has taken away our sins by doing what? Nailing it to the cross. Casting them as far as the east is from the west. Yes, sin is strong, but through the cross we come to know, we come to receive, we come to believe that Jesus is stronger, for by his stripes we are healed, and in his death we can live. Does this fire up anyone today? You guys are quiet today. I'm like, come on, let's get some fire here. This is good news. So, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? It's so simple. It's so simple. Like the blind beggar sitting on the side of the road when he saw Jesus coming, he called out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God. This is David's words after he sinned against God. 
by taking Bathsheba. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It's throwing ourselves at the mercy of God and confessing that we are a sinner in need of a savior, knowing that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to him. We confess to him that we are a sinner in need of God's grace because it is only through his forgiveness that the power of sin is broken in our lives. Sin is now defeated. Because of the cross, yes, sin is a power, but it is a fraudulent power. It's sin is like the Wizard of Oz, who on the outset is completely terrifying and seemingly completely powerful, yet the cross has pulled back the curtain and rendered sin powerless. And all sin is left to do is say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Move along. For the power of sin to be broken in our lives, it requires us to simultaneously recognize that sin is dangerous, it is destructive and deadly, yet at the same time, because of Jesus, our sin has been defeated. Our sin has been defeated. So we can actually give sin far more power than it deserves to be given when we allow sin in our lives to go unnamed, unrecognized, and unchallenged. You know, sin's power is often limited to how much we allow sin to remain hidden and in darkness. But when we recognize it, when we name it, when we challenge it by allowing it, what is hidden, to come to the light, we are set free from sin's power. Fleming Rutledge, and I'll close with this. She says this, If sin is not exposed, named, and renounced, then there has been no justice, and God is dishonored. But I'm telling you this, if God loves you so much, that he was willing to do all that he did while you were still a sinner. While you were still a sinner, he died for you. He did all this for you. Imagine what he would like to do for you when you are now a sinner saved by grace. You know, it is nothing more than a lie of Satan to make us believe that God loves you so much that he would accept you while you were a sinner. But now that you are saved by his grace that he would now in your sin turn his back on you, that he will reject you and be angry with you when you confess your sins and turn back towards him. See, if sin is turning away from God, repentance and confession is turning back towards him. If sin is disagreeing with God, repentance and confession is coming back and agreeing with him once again. If sin is our falling short, repentance and confession is falling into God's grace. If sin is our prideful rebellion, confession and repentance is our humble surrender. There is no sin too small that God will ignore, but yet there's no sin too great that God won't forgive. So if you hear his voice today, and I'm telling you today, if you hear his voice, if there's conviction over you today, or if there's something prompting you to go towards the grace of God, the love of God, that's not you. That's not your flesh. That's not your sinful nature. That is God in you. That is his grace. Run. Do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Open your hearts today and exchange your sin for his grace.